Welcome to Talking Confidence with me, Holly Kaplan. Having confidence in the workplace is essential for progress, fulfillment, and yes, survival. The issue is that confidence doesn't always come easy and is impacted and influenced along the way. Well, as a confidence coach, I know the key to finding and keeping your confidence is to recognize how professional situations have affected how you think of yourself. In this podcast together, we will examine exactly what impacts women's confidence in the workplace. We're going to get raw in these episodes. We are going to peel back the layers of social interactions, company culture, gender discrimination, ageism, and more. My guests will include entrepreneurs, corporate executives, and business owners. We are going to get down to what these women are really feeling. Expect vulnerability, openness, and relatability. But most importantly, expect to find your confidence. Today, I want to talk about the word shame. It's a word I remember hearing clearly as a child from my mother, my teachers, and my family, all using the well-known phrase, shame on you. The feelings I would get when those words were directed at me were humiliation, embarrassment, and fear. The word is really a tool used to evoke such emotions. Looking back, those feelings of shame contributed to my own lack of confidence and limiting beliefs. Shame became a normal part of growing up. Not very healthy now that I'm really thinking about this. Where this gets even more twisted is when I think about how the theme of shame carried itself with me into adulthood and work life. I encountered business leaders who led by using shame, boyfriends who controlled with it, and sadly, friends who used it to elevate themselves. It encompassed me and it felt normal. Experiencing feelings of humiliation wasn't foreign and it was tolerated by me. In business specifically, I can recall these examples. Being shamed in a business meeting when I was told my sales numbers still weren't good enough even when I had reached the company goal. On the flip side, being shamed when I exceeded those goals... (laughs) I was told I was lucky and shouldn't really enjoy being at the top of a sales performance list because I would certainly not be able to achieve success again. Being shamed on a conference call when my boss said I was an epic failure in front of my coworkers. That was an awesome moment. And then lastly, experiencing the discomfort when watching my colleagues being shamed at the boardroom table. It wasn't isolated to me. It was systemic. As sick as this sounds, I felt like shame had to be a part of my personal and work life because if not, I wasn't really deserving of good things to come. I had to learn, earn them by feeling humiliated first. That's effed up. That will jack up your confidence. Here's what I did not do until 2017. Set boundaries. I didn't realize that I could stop this behavior and undo all of that negative trash talk in my head by creating clear lines between what I would accept and no longer accept into my personal and career life. My regret here, I wish someone would have taught me to set boundaries sooner. This is why today I bring to you Deborah McMurray. She has taught me so much and has brought to light so many issues I wish I would have addressed so many years ago. Her story includes shame, but it also includes perseverance, and it will pull at your heartstrings. Be sure to listen through to the end of this episode so you can hear my two tips on how to protect yourself from the shamers and let your confidence lead. 
Deborah McMurray is the founder, CEO, and strategy architect of Content Pilot LLC, a marketing strategy, design, content, and technology company that serves law firms and other professional service firms across the U.S. and abroad. Clients include the world's largest law firms, regional powerhouses, and local boutiques, all firms that want better websites, proposal automation, and experience management strategies and tools. Deborah was inducted into the Legal Marketing Hall of Fame in 2008. She was elected into the College of Law Practice Management in 2007 and was named as one of National Law Journal's 2013 Top 50 Legal Business Trailblazers and Pioneers. Every year since it started, she's been listed by Law Dragon as a top 100 consultant in the legal industry. And in 2021, Deborah was named to Law Dragon's Global 100 Leaders in Legal Strategy and Consulting list. She rocks. She's a frequent speaker at national and international conferences and countless meetings. Miss Deborah, thank you so much for joining me today for the podcast. I could be anywhere else, Holly, but I choose to be with you because um, you're one of my favorite people. Well, you're one of my favorite people too. And as I always do before we get into our questions, I'd like to tell the listeners how we met. And I'll tell them this much. We met through a mutual friend named Susan Freeman, who's based out of Northern California. She said, you two should meet because you both live in Dallas. And we did. And after that, it was like, you know, we'd known each other forever. Yeah, a love fest. Yes, yes, you're like family already because you're just that kind of person. So I have to brag about you. Thank you. And Susan's business, Freeman Means Business, sponsored your new fabulous talk that we that you gave in November, November here in the Dallas area, and um, we had a full house because you're a terrific speaker. And will you tell the audience the name of your talk? Yes, thank you. It is called it it if it, it's hashtag the sunny side of shame. Yes. Yes. Deborah tells her life story about shame and how it's impacted her personally. And um today we're gonna talk about it professionally, but I highly encourage anyone who's listening to go to YouTube and look up hashtag the sunny side of shame. Did I get that right, Deborah? Yes. Okay. And we'll talk about it more at the end of the podcast because I think you're a terrific speaker and your story needs to be heard, girl. This is like TED Talk stuff here. So um, I know other people will appreciate it as well. Thank you. So um, with that said, now our listeners kind of know about the shame aspect of things. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes. Thanks, Holly. Um, I am the... A native Minnesotan. I always say that because I'm very proud of my West Central Minnesota roots, or as we say in Minnesota, roots. <laughs> <laughs> I am the founder, CEO, and strategy architect for a full-service marketing and technology agency called Content Pilot. Our clients are predominantly law firms and other professional services firms, and they range in size from small business-to-business boutiques to the largest law firms in the world. And we, it, it, this is January is always a happy time at Content Pilot because it's our anniversary month. And 16 years in this month. Oh my gosh. I, I honestly, I can honestly say I still wake up energized to climb into our work. Um, 
the client relationships are rich and the design content and website work in particular it, for me is so creative and fun. And so I'm still really having fun. I'm so glad to hear that, especially 16 years later, you're still driven every day. Yeah. Yeah. I know. You, you I, are a creative, you are super creative. I've, I've seen your work and I've seen your fabulous house, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm also gratefully, happily married to my fourth husband, Glenn, whom I met 14 years ago on an American Airlines flight from LaGuardia to Dallas. Yes. Um, I never had children, but as part of Glenn's family, I now have three stepdaughters, three, three stepdaughter husbands, and four, almost five grandchildren. Oh my God. Gosh, what a big family. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a beautiful family. I'm I am so grateful to be a part of it. Oh, I'm so glad. And your husband is just he's a charm. I love him. He's super thank super. you. Um, thank you for setting the stage for us because I think it's important for people to hear where you came from and what your family is like now. It just gives it more of a personal touch. Um, let's go, let's go back to early Deborah because we're gonna be talking about shame today and how experiencing shame led you to setting boundaries. Could you start with telling us about when you experienced shame when you were a young child? Yes. Thank you. I, um, I, and, and I, I first decided, I'll, I'll tell that in a moment, but I first decided to actually tell my story um, over the Christmas break in 2018. And I call it, you know, in kind of an air quotes, my shame story. Um, and that revel and, and what I, what I was doing was I, I went back to Minnesota to, and I told my older brother who I had never told anyone in my family about, including my mom and dad. And I'll talk more about that, about what had happened to me. And I had certainly never told him and, um, and I just, and he and I are now, we, we didn't grow up close, but he and I are very, very close. And, and it was really important to me to tell him because I actually was scheduled. Susan Freeman had scheduled me to give this speech in San Francisco in May of the next year. So May, 2019. And I thought, okay, wow, I'm, I'm going, I have to tell my family this story before I start really, you know, making it public. And, um, and I didn't, um, and I didn't bury the lead when I, when I was writing this story or I was telling my brother, I didn't bury the lead. So I start out with, I was raped when I was four years old and, and I start there and, um, and I, I knew I couldn't go home and tell my parents, my mom and dad, that the son of my babysitter, who was probably 11 or 12 at the time, had raped me. And I just knew I couldn't go home and tell my mom and dad. And and another podcast host asked me uh, in August when I was doing a podcast with him, well, what happened before you were four? That How did you know you couldn't tell your parents? And um, I, I knew, I instinctively knew that my dad would have thought I was lying and he would have beaten me Mm-mm. for lying. And my 
highly accomplished concert pianist mother would have left the room so she didn't have to watch it. And um, because she was a secret keeper and she, for a lifetime, nine decades, kept the secret that she had been raped by her piano teacher when she was 15. And uh, she told me that about six months before she died. And I just, I just made things so clear to me, the whole concept of secret keeping and so consequently, I knew at a, at a very, very young age that you just didn't talk about things that were shameful or uncomfortable or scary or anything like that. And, um, and the idea of sort of family protection, yes, that you know, your, fam- your parents are supposed to protect you from these heinous things happening to you. And I just, I just felt I didn't have any of that protection. And um, and then in in grade school, um, I had two additional sexual abuse encounters with other pedophiles. Ugh. One one was my violin teacher in fourth grade, who a man probably in his forties, and the other was a man I met on vacation with when I was on vacation with my mother and another mother and her daughter on a cruise. Um, and I was in fifth grade and he oh was, God. that man was probably in his fifties. He, he just was, he was a radio operator on this ship that we were on. And I didn't tell anyone then of those experiences either. I just um, kept pretending they didn't happen. And so consequently, and there were lots of other things that I pretended at two, those were, you know, those were sort of the cataclysmic events, but there were lots of other things that because of this framework of shame and secret keeping, it had, you know, the, it was able to stretch. It was like in a, in a, um, like a mesh bag that could keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, um, and so I just, kept carrying that bag around with me. And then of course I had my own shaming behaviors that I, you know, I look back on and, and, and I would have by anyone's standards, I would have thought in my mind, I would have thought they were shameful. And I certainly wasn't going to tell anybody those things either. No. So all of that just kept going into this bag. Um, Robert How did you Bly, cope with that? How did you cope with that? from being four-year-old to fourth grade to fifth grade, how do you, I know you said you pretended like it didn't happen, but other than suppressing it, how did you, how did you manage it? Well, it's, it's, as a child, I managed it um, differently. I think as, you know, as an adult, I became clearer and more rigorous in my management of it. And, And as a child, I was funny. And I, I wasn't, I I didn't go so far as sort of becoming the class clown, although I did have one teacher who accused me of that. And I thought, Oh, Oh. I actually was flattered by that. Thanks. (laughs) Okay. I'll take that. And, um, so I was funny and I, I was a good student, not a great student, but I always did. I was a gifted young musician and I grew up into a grew up to be a gifted adult musician 
And, um, and I also was good in theater. So I was absolutely delighted to be able to pretend to be other people in the act in, in various role and, you know, plays that grade schoolers or, and, and junior high kids do are, are silly, silly plays. But in high school, I, I was able to play Antigone as a senior in high school. And that was a strong, the story of Antigone is remarkable and she, you know, she's a strong young woman who stands up to her father and all of the Greek, you know, leaders of the world at that time. Wow. And it's it's a marvelous story. And and I felt very empowered by Antigone, and I learned a lot from her. Um, so that gave me a lot of strength, and and it, it knew it it taught me that I could overcome. Not in a it's not going to ever get in my way again kind of way, but in a, okay, it's not in my way right now kind of way. Right. Would you say that theater was kind of healing for you? It was. I I was able to, where I couldn't allow myself to be, to actually really feel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to play these characters where I could, where they felt. So through the encounters and the storyline that, that, you know, some marvelous playwright had done, had created, I was able to, to, you know, to feel and to experience a a wide range of emotion, but I never, and I ultimately stopped doing theater because I devoted myself to music and you can't, it's really hard to do both. But Um, I, I always sort of, I, I always missed it. I always, and it's probably why as an adult now I'm so engaged in the theater community here as a donor and volunteer and, um, and I'm, I'm so passionate about it because I, the stories that you can, that we are having the the luxury of witnessing on stage, I know it goes into it from an acting standpoint and how, cataclysmic they can be both to an audience member and to the performer. Right. You are very involved too. That's ironic now that I hear that about you. I didn't know that about you, about Antigone and Mm. theater. And then how now, you know, you're still a big supporter of what you loved when you were in high school. So Mm -hmm. it kind of, kind of tells a story there. That's pretty interesting. So at, at what point did you realize that you ex- you had experienced shame because I grew up in a sh- shameful household. Not nearly anything you did, but I w- I was raised to keep secrets, not say anything, protect the family, or there was shame, and I didn't know what it was. Like mm-hmm. I don't think I knew what it was until mm, three or four years ago. Like I just thought that was normal, but you mm-hmm. you knew it. You how did you unveil that? How did you realize it? Uh, well, it was a, it was a remarkable moment that I remember like it was yesterday. I was 27 years old and walking along a quiet, dark street in Aspen, Colorado with a boyfriend after dinner. And we were walking back to the hotel 
And in the middle of the street, all of a sudden, I stopped in my tracks and in front of me was essentially a a hallucination um, that, you know, that was, I hadn't, and I certainly, I was not, I was never a drug user, thank goodness. And so I didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a a drug addled state and I didn't, I think I'd had a couple glasses of wine maybe. So, um, but I, but literally in the middle of the street, there was, there appeared a mirage of these three distinct sexual abuse incidents and and in absolute detail the 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 i you know from the from the feeling of the carpeting on the floor which was dirty carpeting on the floor of my babysitter's house um and to the feeling of that to the smell of the coffee she made a a, a crazy type of coffee that was very popular in Minnesota called egg coffee mm where you mix an egg into the coffee grounds and it really, it's delicious coffee, but it, it, I could smell it. It smells different. It doesn't have that sort of bitter pungent smell. It has a much smoother, more caramel kind of smell. It's really delicious. And, and I could smell that. And I, and all of that is in this mirage and it was three dimensional. And I, I saw exactly what happened to me one after another, these three scenes in the middle of the street. So my boyfriend keeps walking oh. and finally he realizes I'm not there. And he turns around and I am just standing there. He of course can't see a thing. And I'm just standing there in the middle of the street, dumbfounded because I knew it was all true. I knew that in that moment I felt safe enough to remember and I, we went into the, I sort of brushed it off. I, I thought, okay, well that was crazy. Yeah. Went into the, to the, uh, to our hotel room getting ready for bed. And, and, and he asked me what happened back there. And then I, you know, the floodgates open and I started crying my eyes out and telling him all this and, you know, what a good guy he was. He just held me and he just listened and, didn't try to fix it. Didn't try to say, "Oh, it'll be okay." Didn't try to do any of those things. He just was a good guy and sat there and listened, and um, and you know, told me that that I that I was loved, and that was a remarkable thing. After that, so that was when I was twenty seven. So then, after that, I put it on a shelf figuring out, you know, just sort of in, in a, cause I, you know, I, you compartmentalize these things oh, yeah. and I put it on a shelf and just said, okay, well that's done. <laughs> you know, I can check that off my list. <clears throat> and, and then it was years later that I moved to Dallas, started working at my first law firm job. And I was in a very bad relationship that was very toxic and I couldn't seem to get out of it. And I was really interested in finally going to a therapist and, and figuring out why I couldn't extract myself from this, you know, this pain and anguish that was pretty much a constant. And I went, walked into the, I found a therapist 
um, who had been referred to me and I asked him, or I said, in, a, in my most polished, poised, you know, professional vo- tone of voice and posture and said, all right, I'm here because I have three things I want to deal with. And I'm, I want, I'm in a toxic relationship. I can't seem to get out of, I, fi- I want the sexual abuse to finally, you know, be out of my life and finally be behind me. And I want to deal with my relationship with my dad. And he laughed, the therapist laughed. And I thought, well, what a jerk. You're like, this isn't funny. (laughs) This is not, you know, I, and what he was laughing at, of course, was not what I was saying, but how I was so professionally in such a polished way, delivering this, this um, agenda that I had. Yes. And, um, and he, but I thought, well, you are such a jerk, but he said, I can, help you get out of the relationship. The sexual abuse will never be behind you, but I can help you intervene and tell me about your relationship with your mother. And I thought, whoa, okay. This, that was really interesting because I yeah. had said my dad. Yeah. He was going and deep on that one. He was going yeah. deep. Yeah. So he was exactly the, the person, but I saw him for 10 years. And his name is, was Jim. And I saw him for 10 years and I worked my ass off trying to figure it all out and had as new shaming experiences and lots and lots of sexual harassment in the workplace mm-hmm. and bullying in the workplace mm-hmm. um, as those experience, experiences would, and they were paralyzing to me. I mean, they didn't look like to anyone else, any observer, they, I looked like I was fine, but internally paralyzing and just did a number on my sense of security and safety. And, um, and I just, I just didn't, you knew the feeling. Oh my goodness. And it was such a, that familiar feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally understand it. And it's a way, it is a way of life in a lot of corporations. And I don't think they've typically put the, put the word shame to it, but just for the record, it should be because mm-hmm. the bullying and the ranking and the sexual harassment, it's all freaking shame, all of it. Right. Um, well, now that you're bringing us into your professional life, can you give us some examples of those experiences? Yes, I can. Um, and a couple of them are so outrageous that, uh, that they're almost laughable, especially the, this first one I'm going to share. Um, so my first, I, I had a, prof- I was a professional musician, classical musician. And, um, and when I decided I, when I discovered I was a morning person and not a night person, I thought in my mid twenties that I probably should I don't know, get a job, <laughs> you know, actual, job sounds get right. an actual, like, like an office job. And so I did, I applied um, and was hired by the regional office for the March of Dimes in Denver. I was in my mid twenties and the regional director, and I think there might've been six or so regional directors for the March of Dimes in the, in the entire United States 
So it was a big job. You covered a lot of territory and it was, he, he was a career guy and got, you know, gone up the ladder at the March of Dimes and, and was running this office. And I was his, not an admin. I was kind of a, I don't even know what my title was, but I was, um, I had a lot of, a lot of responsibility uh, and I made almost zero dollars. Of course, it was the March of right, Dimes. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but I he he literally chased chased me around my desk. He was a six foot four five tall man, and and I he and I'm you know five seven. He 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 actually chased me around my desk. And then when we had to travel, which we t- together, which we did quite a lot, Ugh. he would never book two hotel rooms. He always would say he was either trying to save the agency money or there was only one room available. One time we were stuck in a blizzard in Laramie, Wyoming, and he went into the hotel room because we couldn't get back to Denver that night. And he said there was only one room. And in those circumstances, um, I, I thankfully there was no sexual activity. Um, I was able to thwart his advances and, um, and, but I, I needed the job and I, 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 you know, I didn't tell because I, I needed the job and I would have had no idea whom to tell. Right. And here we are um, again at not telling to tell. So I just, I just, I needed my job. So I just bottled it up. And, mm-hmm. and what I discovered as I was thinking about what our conversation today, Holly, what I, what I discovered is for more than 20 years, every time I was an employee in a firm or company, many prestigious organizations, the lack of Boundaries in the workplace was glaring, whether it was sexual harassment or it was bullying um, from the March of Dimes to an advertise, uh, advertising agency where I worked to the two law firms where I worked. So I finally started my consultancy, left my last law firm in 1998, started my consultancy did that for a few years and then um, started content pilot in 2006. And I never thought about it at the time. Right. But, you know, I, I was comfortable being, I was a essentially a freelance musician, like so many artists are today. They're essentially freelancers and, yeah. Um, and you go, you, you are paid from gig to gig and that was easy. That was really comfortable for me. And what I didn't really realize until I then, you know, quit my job, started my consultancy, was working, you know, doing consulting work all over the country and then started content pilot. I mean, I'm technically an employee of content pilot, um, today that obviously that's different cause it's my company, but I, I just had such bad experiences in the workplace, 
Um, I learned a lot. I, I'm grateful for the time I had there because I really learned a lot. Right. I learned my profession. I learned, I mean, countless, countless things that are important to me today. But that lack of boundaries and the the contribution to the continuous feeling of shame by covering up the sexual harassment, which I never told anybody, or the bullying, which I actually did tell the firm leaders. But I, you know, I, there was no, I, I just, you know, being an entrepreneur was um, not a panacea, but it certainly kept me more feeling in control. It gives you more control. You're right. Because I lived in a shame-based and fear-based environment at a large organization. And I learned to live with it mm-hmm. because I was, I just thought these things were normal. I, like you, I internalized and just covered them up and thinking, well, that felt like shit, but is this what I'm supposed to expect? Mm-hmm. So when, and then I'm on my own, like you, I was like, I don't have that anymore. I don't have that. I wouldn't treat people like that. I wouldn't expect to be treated like that anymore. It's it's just, to your point, it's very empowering because now you have control of who you work with, who your clients are mm-hmm. in a good way. Like it's, it's a different thing altogether when you go out on your own. You get to create your own culture. Exactly. It, it, now, do these experiences still occur? Um, and they certainly have as, you know, since I've been a consultant, um, they have certainly, I, I've certainly you know, had advances made and things like that. And do I, and have I told about those? No, I have not. Um, but I, I just chose not to say anything. Would I today, if I, would I say something about the sexual harassment? If, if I had an experience today, yes, I probably would. Sure. Because I'm at an, I, I have, I've got enough gravity in both my career and, and age. Yes. But if I were 20 years younger, would I say something? I don't know. I don't know if I would, I would hope I would, but I don't know. Well, I think we've come a long way since then because I don't think I would have said anything 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And like you today, you know, it, it's a different story. So, and I think we were kind of trained back then to not really say anything. We so, were trained and we were, and, and I, I, I said this on another podcast where I was a guest and um, I do believe that women have to make their own choices about these things and men too. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is not, you know, sexual harassment is certainly not unique to women. And I frankly think it's probably harder for men to, you know, to, verbalize it to anyone because, you know, there's still the, you know, the perception that, you know, men should be in control and be able to handle things and, right. And so on. How could this happen to you? Yeah. 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 And, and, and shame, I mean, secret keeping and shame is alive and well among men as, as much as it is uh, um, among women. But I think that women, we have to understand what kind of progress we want to make in an organization and what kind of um, environment we're, we want to, to work in. And so we make choices 
we either tell or don't tell. We either um, say it's intolerable. I'm going to go and find another job where this is just not going to happen. And sometimes that ha- they they leave and they don't tell. You right. know, each each when each woman has her own story, and to suggest there's one way of handling sexual harassment in the workplace today is unfair for women who are actually going through it. Right. There's no cookie cutter. No. There's no cookie cutter approach to it. Mm-mm. I mean, HR might think there is, but not exactly. And they, HR, they'll have a cookie cutter. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I was, I was thinking about, um, you had um, earlier asked me a question about what happens when a company doesn't have boundaries mm-hmm. was one of the questions you asked. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you think it does to an employer, the organization? Um, and I, I am confident that every organization today, you know, the business I'm where I live mostly is, well, the charitable world, um, you know, sort of um, the philanthropic world, and then uh, the business world. And every organization believes they have clear, well-articulated boundaries, especially after Harvey Weinstein. But you know what? This was fascinating to me. The meet, you know, the Me Too movement. Yeah, of course. <laughs> actually, started in two thousand six. Yes, it was. It was started back then. It was. not in twenty seventeen. Well, I didn't know that. So it's, you know, when the hashtag went viral, it was eleven years old, and I had never heard of it until twenty seventeen. So I asked myself, why is that? Why me, who would be super sensitive to the idea of sexual violence, sexual uh, sexual abuse, sexual harassment? Why had I never heard of it? And I had to ask the question, and why was it, why did America really not know about it? And I had to ask the question, is it because the founder who was a victim of sexual violence was a black woman who wasn't famous? Right. And it's tragic to think that that might be the case and that it took the boundary breaking experiences of movie stars by Harvey Weinstein and others right to give a now universally recognized voice to the hashtag me too right it's taken the rose mcgowans and the alyssa milanos and uh groups of of actresses like that to to give it lift it mm-hmm. took it took that i just have to say my laughing from a couple of minutes ago yeah. was not inappropriate. It was because I was thinking about what companies have not done since 2006 and 2017. Mm-hmm. They're, they are still not making the right changes. These things are still happening. And I can say it because I hear it every day. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I, I wanted to point out my laughter was just really, you know, um, amusement that yeah. uh, revisiting the amusement that nothing's changed. I can speak from experience on that one. So sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. yeah. It's um it's crazy. So the uh what you you had asked me to tell um the story about the famous dove hunt. Oh yeah, I like that story. Yeah, like which that. is a really it's a really good story. 
Um, and it has be this story has become kind of part of legal marketing lore in my my industry. Um, and and so I had to plan. I was employed by my second law firm as the um, the director of marketing, director of client relations. I think my title was um, for an, a, a, to um, to design and create and choreograph an annual dove hunt for clients over Labor, Labor Day weekend. And uh, we had about eighty five clients and fifteen lawyers booked for this, you know, Lollapalooza weekend in Snyder, Texas. Yeehaw! Giddy up. A car, yeah, giddy up indeed. A car full of partners. I'm at the event getting ready to to launch into the very first hunt at 5 p.m. on, I think it was a Friday night. And a car full of partners, of the law firm's partners, arrived one hour before the first hunt after a long day of golf and alcohol. And they were all drunk and they were carrying their guns and ready to go on the first hunt an hour That's later. Safe. And I, That's safe. yes, That's of good. course. Yeah, right. So I suggested to them in my, uh, my loveliest, um, you know, Susie tour guide voice that they sit the first time out, have another beer. And of course they refused. And that moment I called the administrative partner in Dallas and said, there is nothing you can do, but I'm just alerting you that I'm worried about this. I know we have insurance, but we have 85 clients and we have drunk partners who are going to convene with those clients and everyone's carrying guns. So I said, pray that nothing happens. And, you know, thank God nothing happened. But back in the office on Tuesday after Labor Day, the administrative partner called in these partners and said, Deborah called me and told me that dot, dot, dot. And then he read them the riot act for their bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -mm. he threw me under the bus, of course, unintentionally, I'm sure. But from that moment on, whenever the entire band of partners and associates in this one particular practice group saw me in the hallway, they would call me the C word when they were walking by. And then, and that lasted a week or two that, and I just didn't tell anybody that I just ignored them and it sounds like high they schools. were, they're like, high schools. exactly you, grown ups, you're grown ups. It's, exactly. Exactly. They were behaving so badly, so stupidly, but then the senior partner and kind of ringleader of that group was so angry. I don't know if this anger, his anger kept building, but he walked into my office screaming expletives and he is just yelling and yelling and yelling. And he finally picks up the club chair sitting in front of my desk. And now in this moment, things sort of start going in slow motion as I'm witnessing this and my, my recognition that he is going to throw this chair at me is is, you know, my feelers are thankfully working hard to tell me, get out of the way. So I scooted out from behind my desk and out my office door and he pivoted and he threw the chair after me and he broke the door frame in my office. Oh my God. Yes. And I did tell the managing partner and the administrative partner about that. And I said, at the time, 
I am firing him mm-hmm. and his entire group as a client, mm-hmm. which I am confident probably never happened to them before or since. I was the first marketing director. So I was, you know, I was a zebra in a land full of horses anyway. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so this, the fact that, you know, wait a minute, you're firing, you're just not going to work for the partner anymore. So, but they, they didn't say, they didn't discourage me from that, but they didn't fire him. That partner did not have, did not get fired, did not have to apologize to me. And I mean, certainly got around the law firm, Right. And people, you know, people didn't like him. He was, he was a very disliked partner, but he had good billings and, um, and ultimately that group left maybe two or more years later, that whole group just, you know, picked up and left and went to another firm. And, um, there was cheering in the hallways. Um, but that's how long it took. And it wasn't of, you know, the firm didn't do anything. That's really really disappointing. Mm-hmm. But like you're saying, he had good billing, he had these other things, so they didn't care about his behavior, which to me just breeds more bad behavior, you know? Yeah. Other people know about it, they see it, and it was fine, and he was safe. Right. And you know, the the amazing thing about that story, even though I actually told someone, I felt shame about that. I felt shame that I was being called the C word in the hallway. I would expect so. Yeah. Because, because it was, you know, he, what, what they were doing was they were, I all my entire life, all I wanted to be was quote unquote normal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I always felt like a misfit. I always felt like an outsider and miss, I felt misunderstood. And yet one more thing making me feel different you know, them calling me out that way, someone loathing me so much that they would actually, in an office environment, throw a chair a chair at me. <laughs> I know. That's crazy. And, now. That's crazy. And that's yeah. his own stuff. That's his own yeah. stuff. Yeah. But it's, it sticks with you. It doesn't go away. No. It doesn't go away, but and in some and 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 in some level, because I because you grow up, especially with my experience as a child, I grew up thinking I must have done something right. that caused this. Yes. What did I do to invite this? Which is, of course, what my dad would have blamed me for. That well, you invited this somehow. It's your fault. This happened, right? So there's shame and blame together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What I do like about what you did is you said, I'm not going to work with him. You're, you, you were um, exercising your boundaries. You said, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm done. Yeah. And I, that was felt like a big risk. It, yeah. it thankfully wasn't turned out not to be a risk, but, um, but you know, the, the vitriol that I still had to endure because now those people really hated me. That group really hated me because I wasn't going to get any, you know, get any of their shit done. Right. So that was that, you know, you know, 
so the abuse and the bullying absolutely continued until they walked out the door. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. And it, it just amazes me that the organization just let it roll like that. Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't stopped. It wasn't managed. It was just, they just let it go. Yeah. How did you keep your confidence high in that period? I, that's a really great question. Um, I worked hard and I was good at my jobs. Um, I was smart. I was a fast learner, creative, diligent, and I have always worked incredibly hard. And that gave me confidence in my performance, intellect, abilities, uh, my relevance Mm -hmm. um, inside the organization. But underneath, I was wildly insecure, Mm. um, riddled with shame but my outward confidence, and I was an actress, you remember. Right. So my outward confidence was convincing. And I and I felt confident because, because I worked so hard. And, um, but my, my, that confidence was convincing, convincing that I had my act together. Right. And, um, and people, you know, respected me and respected my work product and, um, and they had no idea, absolutely no idea. Right. What was going on on the inside. Mm-mm. But I do like that your confidence came from belief in your work and you knew you had a good product. You knew you were good at what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And that, that, it sounds like that's what carried you as you worked through the other issues that were going on. Yeah, it did. It, and I'm so grateful for that. You know, I feel, it feels like a gift. I know. Um, I think success is, you know, a combination in, of v- hard work and luck. And there are probably, I mean, there are countless of famous people, the Warren Buffetts of the world and, and so on, who have said things like that, that hard work and luck is what, you know, makes it all happen. Right. Um, but, and I, and I believe that, and I am so grateful that I, had a great work ethic. Yes. And, yes, you and I had good, you know, sort of good raw material to work with. I was just, I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you're very authentic in what you do. Let me just state that. Thank you. How, this might be a bigger question and I just thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what boundaries do you have in place now as a business owner that protect you? Uh, it's, uh, a variety of boundaries. Um, I don't, it's not really something I think of on a daily basis at all, except when my company content pilot, um, devoted with the guidance of an outside consultant that we hired, um, we spent a lot of time during COVID, the 2020, COVID, the COVID first COVID year, um, working on our core values. Oh, and so we were, you know, we were not a young company at that point. We were 14 years old, and um, and I certainly had core values of my own that guided me and guided the company. But I, but we had never done it as a leadership team. And, and that was 
transformational in a lot of ways. And you look at you know various websites, whether they're law firm websites or other corporate America websites, and they they all generally most of them have a core values statement and a page, and you they're all nice and everybody feels good about them. And but to actually dig in and choose the words and choose the language around it, and and what that means to yes, I will do this and no, I won't do that. Those, you know, there are guideposts, there are guardrails. Yes. Um, And it, it goes to the kind of, you know, we say we, you know, there, it's a no bullying environment. We're anti-racist, anti-bullies, you know, very clear language around and very intentional language and I was really the the leader of of getting them on paper, and so every every one of our core values are, and the language that supports it came from a very honest, authentic place and experience where I was essentially saying, "I've been in places that didn't do any of this, and." Right. And I do not want a company with a bad reputation around these things. And I want our employees to know that this is content pilot is a safe space. And I I love it. I love it. I'm good. I'm over here. I know we can't see each other. I'm I'm smiling. I'm sitting here smiling because you're like, no, I'm going to do things differently. We're going to explore our our core values, we're going to teach them and preach them and live by them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's action, you know, that's and, change. And yeah. And they, and they work. And that's the, that's the amazing thing. Um, for example, a really good example is the, so fourth quarter 2020, when the kind of the world started opening up a little bit in terms of commerce and law firms start and uh, start our, our law firm clients started, you know, their budget, their, they actually were not doing as badly as they thought they would. So they reinstated their spending and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and we had opportunities to compete for a couple of large website projects for very important major firms in the U S and, um, and and we did, and the I, I, we always conduct a win loss debrief for every project that we compete for, mm-hmm. and whether we win or lose. <clears throat> and I conducted the interview with both clients, and both of them said essentially said we liked you, your technology was terrific. But what really made the difference is we thought you would be a better fit because we started selling and aligning our values with the values of the firm that we were um, that we were pitching to. And so we really dug into the core values of these these organizations and what was important to them and really understanding where our our the intersections were between us where, where, wow, we are really aligned here. And so our presentation was centered around these areas of alignment and they 
said that mattered to us. We think you're going to be a better fit. That's great because they connected with it. it they did, and yep. they and they said you are valuing us. You're you're elevating something that's important to us. You're recognizing it, and you are saying, "Wow, yes, okay, that that matters to us." So you know, they're not just words on a page to us, and so. What I discovered in that process is is that any cynicism I had about those core values pages on these websites, yeah, I thought, okay, it took you know somebody had to get here. They yeah. they got there and they care enough to publish it. So let's honor it and and learn from what they've done. And that was a remarkable lesson, and and it it showed how powerful they can be. Yes. And I love how you're leading by example, Deb. Let me just say that with kind of taking them down the path, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, I just love how you're leading on this. It just makes a difference. So so we're hitting the end here. Um, And we could probably talk forever because it's so easy easy to talk to you. And we we would have to have a glass of wine though. That's coming. That's coming. Yes, for sure. What advice do you have for other women who have experienced the same and need to set boundaries in their personal life or their workplace? What advice do you have for them? Well, what I what I believe is that um, when boundaries are not clear, it means that they are open to shifting. And what we do as as people, men or women, who are trying to succeed, who are trying to get along, who are trying to pretend it's not an issue, we keep moving the boundaries. Um, you know, the, bar- the, the barriers are not set in stone. They're not those giant, giant stones, you know, stanchions that are, you know, impossible to move. They are the kind in movie theaters where, oh, I want to actually get in this row, so I'm going to just move this the stanchion over here, and and we do that a lot, right? And so, and so they don't recognize they're they're doing that. They're doing it to get along, right? And so, the first thing I, the first piece of advice I would say is, um, talk to someone not anyone, any person that you trust. Yes. That you can tell, tell part of your story and to talk about boundary shifting or no understanding of boundaries or um, that Um, let it start there with the concept of boundaries, because I think, um, boundaries ultimately, you know, shifting boundaries ultimately is a coping mechanism. We should, we shift them. Um, they, they easily shift in the organization as well, sort of naturally, but I think we shift them all. We're the ones who are really doing most of the shifting and, and, and so talk to someone and have a conversation around that. Yes. And then ultimately, <clears throat> hopefully they will feel the person will feel comfortable and safe enough to start understanding where 
why they're shifting those boundaries and what the shame story might be. I believe absolutely with every fiber of my being that 100% of us Mm -hmm. have felt shame at some point in our lives and no one teaches us how to deal with it. Truth. So we ignore it and we cover it up and we pretend it's not there and you know, shame begets more shame and, and it starts spiraling out of control and we're now living false selves. And if you feel like you're not yourself, you're not, you you, you know, you like, you feel like you're living a false self of some kind, look at your boundaries, look at what what might be plaguing you from a shame standpoint and understanding that it's okay to own it mm-hmm. what i had to do is i had to own own my shame sometimes sometimes shame is our fault we we are you know we are in doing a lot of shaming behaviors other times like in my case it started because things bad things were done to me but the, the the net result is the same. The you know the shaming, the living a false self is the same, right? And um, and just start talking about it, and feel safe telling it to someone. And then once you've done that, you and you start hearing it, and you think, okay, I got through that. I got through that conversation. Mm-hmm. And it you know it can be really painful, and it can be scary, and it can you'll be crying, lots and lots of crying. And that is okay. And it's all good. Well, I think that's great advice because you're encouraging people to bring it to the surface. What I got out of that was recognize it no matter how or why it's happened and begin to talk about it because it sounds like it's a process. Mm -hmm. There are different steps to it. So I think that would be encouraging for, for our listeners to know, just start there. Just start yeah. there. So beautiful words, Deborah. Beautiful. Thank you. righty. How can people get in touch with you for more advice, speaking, or just to get to know you better? Well, thank you. And I'm absolutely open to that. I am fairly active on social media. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Deborah McMurray. I'm on Facebook. Um and I'm not I I'm sort of I I, I have a private sort of private uh, profile on Facebook, um, Instagram, uh, Deborah McMurray, nine Oh seven. And, um, and Twitter, I actually, my Twitter is at content pilot, but it's certainly a way to, um, uh, to reach me. And my email is, um, McMurray at contentpilot.com. And I live in Dallas and, and I am completely open to, having any conversation with someone to help them through it, to help them get on their journey. Thank you. And I know you mean that because I know who you are. That's that's part of your core. So, and for our listeners, again, you can check her out on YouTube at hashtag the sunny side of shame. And I highly recommend her for speaking engagements because she connects with the audience and there won't be a dry eye in the room. Let me just say that. So Deb, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Holly, thank you. I want to leave you today with some parting tips. 
because I don't want others to continue living their lives with built-in shame. It's not healthy, and we have the power to recognize it and stop it. So here's my first tip. Recognize when you're being shamed. If someone says something to you that makes you uncomfortable, feel less than, insecure, or embarrassed, don't brush it off. You know these situations. You know what I'm talking about where you know someone is out to hurt you, but you don't realize it until 10 minutes after the fact, be aware of it so you know to not let them in again. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, it isn't right. Just be sure to recognize those feelings. Secondly, set your boundaries. If this is a personal shaming situation, you may need to put space between you and the other person or go no contact. I have done both to keep negativity away and keep my confidence high. As for setting professional boundaries, if you are being shamed in the workplace, document when you do have shameful interactions, should you need it in the future. Also, if possible, limit contact with the person doing the shaming. Like, don't share personal information with them and avoid one-on-one conversations. If you have to see them, see them in a group so you can diffuse any interactions. I hope these tips protect you and empower you. Those are my parting words today. This is Holly Kaplan. Cheers until our next episode of Talking Confidence. Thank you, Talking Confidence listeners, for joining me today for this episode. If you would like to connect with me personally for confidence coaching or speaking events, you can reach me at hollykaplan.com. If you would like to buy my book, Surviving the Dick Click, A Girl's Guide to Surviving the Male-Dominated Corporate World, you can find your copy at amazon.com. Thanks.